Thank you for being here this morning. I wonder how many of you enjoy reading. Any readers out there occasionally? I, this summer I read a book. It's called The American Lion, and it's about the life of Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, of course, is the President of the United States. And uh, in that book, there is the story about Richard Lawrence. And uh, Richard Lawrence is a guy who was very unhappy in life. And he expressed his unhappiness by confronting Andrew Jackson in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. It was January 30th, 1835, and Jackson was coming across the rotunda, and Lawrence, with two pistols, pulled one, aimed it at the chest of Jackson, and fired. If you remember the the pistols in those days, there was a reaction that had to happen. There was the cap, there was the gunpowder, and then there was the ball that had to exit. The cap exploded, but the gunpowder did not ignite. And so the ball did not proceed out. So he pulled his second revolver, leveled at Jackson's chest, and fired again. Again, the same thing happened where the cap went off, the gunpowder did not ignite, and the ball did not expel itself. Jackson, who was using a walking cane at the time, proceeded to beat the guy almost to death in defending himself. It was a one in 125,000 chances that someone would be able to draw two guns and fire them and not have them release or expel their bullet. Uh, It was because the powder was damp. As the trial began to unfold itself, Richard Lawrence lived delusionally. He was under the delusion that you should call him King Richard. He was under the delusion that Andrew Jackson was out to get him because he was the king of England. He was under the delusion that his house painting, which was his career, was being undermined by government changes and government ideas. And so he was found insane because of his delusions and committed to an asylum for the rest of his life. Sometimes I'm Richard Lawrence. I live under delusions of myself. I'm sometimes deluded into thinking that I am the most important thing in this world. Sometimes I live under the delusion that life can't go on without me. (laughs) I'm so important. Sometimes in our Christian experience, that happens as well. We become deluded by the things that the world convinces us of. The world tells us that you are the thing that is most important in all of life. That you and how you feel about yourself and what you think about yourself is so very important above all else. Well, this morning, I would like for us to go to Judges chapter 7. And in Judges chapter 7, we will begin to kind of, I'm hopeful, of releasing our delusions of ourselves and beginning to adhere to and prepare our minds and prepare ourselves for what it is that God does in spite of us, and because of us. But there are two things that I think that will become fairly obvious if we go through this. First of all, God's choice is not the most obvious choice. In Judges chapter 6, that's the story of Gideon, which you are Bible students, many of you, and so you are familiar with that story of how Gideon was hiding away because of the Midianites had invaded. He's hiding down, threshing wheat 
down below level, which is not where you threshed wheat, and God called him. Nobody else would have picked Gideon. So the most obvious choice was not Gideon. But God said, Gideon, I want you. The second thing that I'm hopeful that we conclude at the end of this is that God makes it unmistakably clear that the power belongs to God and not to man. At the end of this, we want to be able to say, it's because of God. It's because of God. And what that does is it prepares us for what it is that God wants us to do. So what we're going to do is starting in Judges chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, we're going to discover three truths to remember when doing God's work. Three truths to remember when doing God's work. The first truth is found in the first eight uh, verses of Judges chapter 7. The first truth to remember when doing God's work, he eliminates the uncommitted. He eliminates the uncommitted. In Judges chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, he tells us what the plan is. At this very beginning, there are those that have come. Gideon made the plea in Judges chapter 6, come and we're going to fight the Midianites. And when they arrive, notice the conclusion that is reached. In verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So these people have been called by Gideon, come on out, and they show up in great force, and God says, there are too many, too many. So what he has to do is he has to eliminate the uncommitted. And so the way that he does that, first of all, he says, all right, if anyone is afraid, you can go back home. Now, this was not an unusual thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, this is outlined for us. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, it explains why we do this. The reason why we send home those that are fearful is because they crush the morale of those that want to stay, stay behind. And so this was not unusual. It's not as though Gideon and God came up with something new. This was a part of what happened in Israel's army. In Israel's army, you were given the option, listen, if you are afraid and don't want to do this, go home. Go home. And Gideon says that. He tells them. He says, you may leave. It's almost like, you know, save your own skin, go and do that. And Gideon was okay with it. And the other thing that you have to understand is Gideon was okay with it, not because this was a part of what happened militarily in Israel, according to Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, but also think of Gideon himself. In Judges chapter 6, the story of Gideon, why was he down in the well Harvest, I mean, uh, going through the wheat because he was afraid. So Gideon understood this. And so he's like, listen, fellas, I get this. If you're afraid, go ahead and leave. And so that's what they do. And all of a sudden, there are 10,000 left behind. And 10,000, Gideon's thinking, this is wonderful. This is marvelous. But then what happens? God says, too many. Now, do you remember when they were reading the scripture in Judges chapter 7, verse 12, it said that the Midianites were like locusts. The Midianites had camels that were like the number of the sand of the sea. And there are 10,000 10, Israelites, and God says, too many. And so then that begins the story, right? That begins the story of how are we going to get rid of the next group? The next group, we take them down to the water. 
and we have those that lap and those that scoop. Those that lap are down like a dog in the pond licking the water. And then there are those that are seemingly more alert. They scoop it up and they take it into their hands. And then God says, okay, we've got our 300. But please, can we pause and remember what we're going to hopefully conclude at the end of this is that we want to make it unmistakably clear that God holds the power, not man. So don't get caught up in the lappers and the scoopers. Because uh, sometimes what we want to do is we want to say, oh, those guys that went to the water, they were cautious looking around. They scooped up the water looking for the enemy. Those are the soldiers that we want. And so who do we give credit to? We give credit to those 300 who have this marvelous attentiveness about them and this, this marvelous attitude of awareness. Don't get caught up in that. and get, Instead, get caught up in this. The Midianites were like locusts. The Midianites had camels that was like the sand of the sea. And God had 300. Get caught up in that. Because that's what we're, we're hopeful of discovering. God is eliminating so that at the end, Israel says, what has God done? <laughs> what has God done? Instead of, what have we done? And so he's eliminating these, narrowing them down, narrowing them down. And please don't lose sight of this either. Remember, Gideon has to allow them to leave. When we first met Gideon, God said, Gideon, I want you to be my guy. And what did Gideon say? No, I'm not your guy. I'm not your guy. And God said, no, you're the one that I want. And Gideon says, okay, I've got a fleece. And I'm going to lay it out, and I'm, I want you to get it wet, and I want you to keep it dry. And I want, Do you remember all of that? Not anymore for Gideon. Do you notice what he does? God says, 300 is all we need. And Gideon says, you're right, and sends him off. He doesn't debate God. He doesn't talk to God in any kind of a way that seems to insert Gideon into this equation. Instead, it is this reminder that God is in control, and Gideon's finally getting it. Gideon is comprehending, this is what I need to be doing. I need to be submitting to what it is that God wants for me. I need to be doing it God's way so that it becomes unmistakable that it is God's power and not mine. Alistair Begg is one of my favorite preachers, and he says this, God reduces the number to show when he employs men for service. He is not indebted to us for our service, but us to him for letting us serve. And that's what happens here. Gideon's beginning to understand. This is about God and what he's going to do. The, the, the Midianites are so great. The Israelites are so small. The minority, the small group, God used them in a marvelous way. And not the obvious choices, but God's choices. God loves to do this where he, he narrows down. Remember the 12 spies? The 12 spies go out, 10 come back. Ten are like, they're giants, it's fearful, I'm afraid, we can't do it. Two guys say, let's do it. God uses those two to make Israel a great nation, right? Or, or remember Jesus, Jesus feeding the 5,000, that marvelous miracle. And, and everyone, what did they want to do at the conclusion of it? Let's make him king. Let's make him king. But what does Jesus do? Instead, he narrows the group. 
shrinks the group so that there is this comprehension that it is God that is working and God that is using these ones to transform and to change. Not the multitudes. Because when there are great numbers, what does, what, what's the tendency? The tendency when there are great numbers is to say, my, what a marvelous mass of people. Instead of concluding that God has done great things. The 300 Israelites taking on the Midianites would be like me taking the worship team, going up the road and battling the Bengals in a football game. That's what it would be like. But God wants to make it unmistakably clear that the power belongs to him and not to me, not to man, not to us. God is the difference maker, not me. So we remember that he eliminates the uncommitted. The second thing is he encourages the useful. He encourages the useful. In Judges chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, there is this uh, new instruction. In verse 9, it says, The same night the Lord said to him, that's Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Pause. I love this. Do you know why? Because it reminds me that the guy that has been picked is fragile, frail, and breakable. Because God says, if you're afraid, something Gideon has done before, please feel free to take Puro with you. He doesn't say, stay back. But instead he says, here's someone that can go with you, and I think once you two get there, everything's going to be fine. You see, when we engage God, when we are uh, apart and preparing for what it is that God wants, we are not absent of fear. We still uh, kind of are concerned about things and we think about things. But it is when we allow fear to drive us when we get in trouble. What happens here is that uh, Gideon has harnessed fear. There is not an absence of fear. Bravery is not absence of fear. Uh, you can talk to athletes, you can talk to people, you can talk to those that speak and share, and they will talk about fear. But what do they do? They harness the fear. They use the fear. In this case, uh, the fear is overrun by what it is that God said. So he might be afraid, but what God has told him to do overrides all of that and allows Gideon to move forward. Verse 11, it says, And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camps. Uh, and then you have the dream that is expressed, the dream that is told. In verse 12, When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is, not, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Bottom line, God's in this. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful news. It's encouraging to Gideon. It, it creates a sense in him, doesn't it? Do you notice what sense it creates in him? What does Gideon do after he hears this dream? He worshipped. He worshipped. 
he glorified God. To God be the glory. The awe was not in himself. The awe was in what God's going to do. And he worships. He worships. I, I, I admit to you that there are times when I beg God for stuff. I pray to him fervently. And God answers. And I forget to say thanks. I forget to worship him and praise him for what he's done. Not Gideon. Great thing is about to happen, Gideon. Great thing is about to be a part of your life, Gideon. And what does Gideon do? To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Praise his name. God does not honor the service of those who will not give honor to him. And that's what Gideon does. He praises God, worships him. Uh, there's an old song, it goes like this. What though wars may come with marching feet and beat of the drum, I have Christ in my heart. What though nations rage as we approach the end of the age, I have Christ in my heart. God is still on the throne, almighty God is he, and he cares for his own through all eternity. So let come what may, whatever it is, I only say that I have Christ in my heart. The words of God from those that were in the Midianite camp came to Gideon and he worshiped God. And then he proceeded to do what God asked him to do. Now, I hope that you're able to make the connection here. When God speaks, we have a responsibility to do. When God speaks, we have a responsibility to move, to go. We have this opportunity that God will encourage us through his word. Too many times, and, and my wife and I, we, we talk about this often. We both teach school. My wife teaches kindergarten. I teach in the high school. And we both talk about those outside voices, those outside people that tell things to kids. We even, there was one situation where we talked about where if you would just take these two people and lock them in a room and let them speak to themselves, they would be better off because they were listening to so many voices. But in high school, what happens is there might be some discontent in the mind of a high school student, and they begin to find voices, find voices on social media and other places, and they hear those voices, and those vo voices bring affirmation to them, and it has nothing to, to do with what it is that God wants. We need to, again, as we were led in worship today by Jay, to understand the word of God and how marvelous the word of God is. We need to, again, commit ourselves to listening to what it is that God says. Making it a priority to open the word of God and make reading the word of God a part of who we are and what we do. Gideon understood that and is encouraged by what it is that God does. Remember, God eliminates the uncommitted. He encourages the useful. And then notice the third thing that happens. You get to enjoy the unusual. You enjoy the unusual. Uh, you see what happens in verse 15. It says that uh, he worshiped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said to the men, the 300 that are, that are there, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, 
I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Think about what's happening here. Gideon has winnowed this group down to 300. And then he approaches them with this instruction. Okay, gentlemen, here's a trumpet, here's a torch, and here's a pitcher of clay. Let's go get them. Can you imagine how underwhelming that must have been for them? Gideon, that, that can't be it. That can't be the instruction. There's got to be something more. Where is the great strategy of outflanking them, of outmaneuvering them? Where is the element of surprise? Where is this, this perhaps group of camels that will come rushing to our defense? Uh, maybe you have this uh, cavalry or infantry hidden somewhere that will come up over the rises and save us and bring victory. Instead, you give us a trumpet, a torch, and a pitcher. And then we're going to blow the trumpet, break the pitcher, and shout and defeat the Midianites. Now, have we said this before? The Midianites are like locusts. There's so many. The Midianites are like sand. They have so many camels. The Midianites outnumber us thousands to one. And Gideon, this is your instruction to us? I just may have said, listen, you have lost it. You have lost it. But they don't. They do what he says, and as a result, they win. You know, we have the privilege of looking at Scripture from the 2020-22 lens. We can take our vision of what we know about Scripture and look back and see what's happening here. I mean, think about the torch. Or, or th let's talk about the trumpet first. Whenever there's a trumpet sound, we know that it signals whose presence, the presence of the Lord. Who's compared to a jar of clay that when shattered and broken in the hands of God can be used in marvelous way? And who is the light that burns so brightly that leads us to victory? It's Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And so embracing those simple directives creates an opportunity for something that we can enjoy immeasurably because it is God that is doing us. Uh, these guys engaging and doing what they are told is a re remarkable thing. You see, there is a simplicity here. And this simplicity breaks down any pride or self-reliance. That's what simplicity does. Because it's so simple. Uh, there were 300 guys there, and I would be willing to think that there were some of them that were seasoned veterans of military action. And when they hear about the simplicity of this plan, to whom do they turn? They turn to God. They lean on him. They rely on him. You see, sometimes the simplicity of what is asked of us is often our stumbling block. Do you remember Naaman, who was the captain of the guard of the Syrian army? Naaman was this mighty warrior. He had leprosy. And he had heard from one of the ladies in his realm that there was this guy named Elisha who could do a miracle that could get leprosy and heal him of leprosy. 
And so what does he do? He goes to visit Elisha. Now here he is, this captain of the guard. He's a marvelous individual. He's high society. He is a mega person, right? And when he arrives, what does Elisha do? He sends his servant down to talk to the guy. And what was the instruction? Oh, you want to be healed of your leprosy? Go and dip in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman was incensed. Who is he? We've got better rivers in Syria that are much better and much greater. Who is he not to come and to speak to me? It was the simplicity of this remedy for his leprosy that offended Naaman horribly. He was so offended by the simplicity of it. And it wasn't until he yielded to the simplicity that he was able to enjoy the unusual healing that came to those that have leprosy. He had never experienced anything like it. But it was the simplicity that creates stumbling. It is the simplicity of the gospel, isn't it? There are some of you that are here today that do not know Jesus as your Savior. And part of the reason you don't know Jesus is because it is too simple. You're kidding me. You want me to trust in Jesus for his grace and mercy. That's all we ask. That's all we ask. You are a sinner. You need a savior. And Jesus can do that for you. No way. That's way too easy. I need something else. Do you have any giant hoops I can jump through? Do you have some hot coals I can run across? <laughs> do you have something that I can do to impress you with my wealth and my abilities? Uh, I'm way too smart for something so simple. And as a result, the simplicity keeps you from being what it is that God wants you to be, and that is his child. And then how about us? Sometimes don't we fall prey when the preaching of the word of God is presented and the solution is pray and read the word of God. How many times have I heard that? That's way too easy. There's got to be something more. There's got to be something better. There's got to be something different, something more complex, something that honors my intellect. Do you understand that I am summa cum laude? I had a guy that used to say, he graduated, Lordy, how come he? You know, he, I didn't know I could. But our brilliance is often our stumbling block, isn't it? Our intellect, we want something more, and, and Jesus says, come. Come unto me, all you who labor and need rest, come to me. The simplicity brought great enjoyment in this unusual way of victory, this marvelous way. That when God works, we are able to see and to experience. God's choice is not always the obvious choice. God's plan is to make it unmistakably clear that it is his way and his power, not ours. You've heard this hundreds of times, haven't you? One plus God is a majority. And that's what Gideon teaches us teaches us that God is the one that brings us to where we need to be. Uh, the story reminds us that our need of God is total. It's never partial. Ephesians 2, not by works of righteousness. Why? So you can't boast. Paul in 1 Corinthians, what does he say? God uses the, the, the foolish and the, the, those kinds of things 
Why? So that we can't boast. So that in the end, the only person that's getting the credit is God. You say, you know, you come into a place. It's the 21st century. And you want us to set ourselves aside and to place God in a position of priority where he receives all the credit and the the glory and the praise. You say, that's not 21st century. 21st century is what will you do for my self-esteem? What will you do for myself, for me? Uh, This is what I'll do for you. I will remind you that God wants to make it unmistakably clear that the power belongs to him and not to man. And so this morning, as you feel a sense of brokenness, a sense of pain, a sense of hurt, that I cannot reach with my voice, but God with his word can plumb the depths of whatever it is you're going through and bring change. We just need to rely upon his words. One of the things that I learned the first time I came here to speak, the first time I came here to speak, I didn't say anything about Pastor Eric. I just got up, I, I shared and then afterwards, people were coming up, can't you tell us something about, can't you? So every time since I've been back, I've always, I've always told you something about Pastor Eric. Well, it's the end of the message, so guess what we get to do? Talk about Pastor Eric. Now, don't tell him this story, all right? How many of you are hunters? Anyone hunter in here? Anyone hunt? Have you ever heard of hunting? <laughs> I was born and lived in the suburbs my entire life. My father died when I was five, and so um, that, I didn't have a dad. We didn't do those kinds of things. I lived in suburban America. Now, whenever I would do anything, it was always basketball. So I was always either in a gym, outside, at, at a hoop. That's what I did. Eric has a little bit of different upbringing than I do. You know, his dad, what a marvelous human being. I'm, I'm privileged to have met his dad. I met his grandfather, uh, who was a, a pastor, marvelous personality and person. And, and I've met those men in Eric's life. So he has had men in his life that have just overwhelmed him with a, a, a model and with love and all those kinds of things. Now, I'm not saying that in complaint. I would do my childhood all over again. I'm just telling you the differences. So he and I were college roommates, and one day he came in and he says, hey, tonight, guess what we're going to do? I said, I don't know. What are we going to do? And he goes, we're going to coon hunt. I had no idea what that was. And he goes, raccoons? <laughs> he said, you know what a raccoon is? I said, yeah, I know what a raccoon is. It got in our garbage. He goes, no. He said, we're going to go hunt these. He took me on a raccoon hunt. And I remember I, I got caught up in the, like, the details. Eric, what are we doing? He goes, don't worry, just follow the dogs. Just listen for the dogs. Eric, I'm cold. Don't worry about being cold. Let's go, we'll be moving. Listen to the dogs. Follow the dogs. Stay with the dogs. His grandpa, his dad, his uncle, they were all there, and those guys were hilarious. Those guys were enjoying. It was invigorating. We were out in the coolness, and pretty soon I forgot how how cold I was, and I thought, the pursuit, the hunt, we're going. We're listening for the dogs. This is amazing. This is marvelous. This was something I've never done before, and it was something so simple. Bake. Listen for the dogs. That's all you have to do. Just listen for the dogs, and you're going to have the time of your life. He was right. 
he was right. It was a simple thing, and we had so much fun. This morning, please don't miss the simplicity of God's goodness, grace, and mercy that comes to you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and who allows you to have a book that fills you with opportunity and instruction to do what it is that will allow you to enjoy the life that he has for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the marvelous gift of Jesus. Lord, we have been in the Old Testament all morning, but we ask that you help our minds to move into the New Testament and to use the understanding of things that we've seen to make us better and more aware of our dependence and our need to follow you. Father, help us, prompt us, move us with your spirit to submit to your son and to be in your word. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together in response.